Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Let me read for you out of Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. We, we looked at it in detail last week. Was it last week or did Grayson preach? I can't remember anymore. Okay, so hear the word. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation." And so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, in this passage, we looked at it last week. We talked about the reality of how to be forgiven of your sins, and we pointed out, I pointed out to you that first you must hear and understand the gospel, which is what Peter did in the prior verses. He laid out to these Jews who did not know what was happening around them uh, when the Spirit came upon all of these uh, people at, in, at, in, around the temple. And so he explains it, and in doing so, he gives the gospel. He confronts them with the fact that they lived in the last days and that they were uh, confronted with the person of Jesus Christ whom they crucified and that God rose or raised from the dead. The second thing I said that you needed was you needed a conviction. You needed a conviction of your sin, of your guilt before him. I then pointed out that the third step is that you need to repent, a change of mind where you no longer are going in one direction. You're now going in your thinking and therefore your life in a different direction because you now realize who you are dealing with, that you have him and he is your God, that Jesus is God. He has died, risen again. He is Lord. So there's this repenting, a changing of your mind and way and love. And then finally, you are to believe. And the point I made with that was that you were to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the point behind it that Peter was driving at is they had crucified Jesus. They had rejected Jesus. They did not want Jesus. And now God, uh, Paul, Peter is saying, you will be baptized and you must identify with Jesus in that baptism. So you don't just get to go up there quietly and mumble a few words. You need to identify yourself with Jesus. And the only way they could do that is that they had believed that he truly was that who the Bible and the people and Jesus himself had said they were. But the promise was very good. It was that with that comes then forgiveness of sin. What we also mentioned, though, is that he said that they were to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, and that that is a passage that is much 
uh, debated by people. It, it creates some controversies within the church. Right afterward, it says that all of them who received this were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls. And also there's a mention in verse... Um, 39, that the promise is for you and your children. These few passages are all taken by various groups to mean something, and they use them as part of their argument for various views on the issue of baptism. Now, And that's the issue that we're going to deal with for the next two to three weeks, I believe. We believe here at Monsieur Day Fellowship in what is called believer's baptism or credo baptism, if you want to use a fancier word. Uh, But that is not the only way that baptism is taught, and many of you know that because of your past. The most common way, in fact, in the church today is a form of infant baptism, or if you want the fancy word for that, it's called pedo-baptism. Along with that, you even have a group uh, who believes that For salvation, you must both believe and be baptized, and until both of those occur, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer. Now, this is not a small issue, though. Today, it is treated often. In America today, because the pulpits are so weak and they are so vague and broad in their speech, there is not clarity of doctrine, and so people end up believing all sorts of things and not really knowing why they believe it. There's this thing out there called dogmatic rank. Another way of describing it is theological triage. Uh, Al Mohler from Southern uh, used that term. Dogmatic rank or theological triage. These are just simply terms that mean this, that there is uh, are certain doctrines in the Christian faith that are non-negotiable. That's the point, that there are certain things you must believe, and then there's secondary doctrines, and the fancy word is tertiary doctrines. And so they're ranking them in matter of importance. And so if you reject these things of, of, that are non-negotiable of the first rank, um, you are thou outside of the realm of the Christian faith. You don't have that freedom. So things such as um, the Trinity or the nature of God or salvation by grace through faith alone or the deity of Jesus Christ, you can't willfully reject those and claim rightly that you are a Christian. There is a non-negotiable aspect, obviously, therefore, to the Christian faith. Now, there are other things, then, they would argue, that are very important, very important doctrines, but they're not absolutely non-negotiable. These would be things such as the understanding of the nature of sin or the nature of your new birth or the fancy word for that is called regeneration. When are you born again? Do you, are you born again and therefore you believe or are you born again because you already believe? Which one comes first? There's all kinds of debates. They're very, actually very important. There's good reasons behind that, but those are not absolutely necessary for you to be able to claim rightly that you're a Christian. 
And then you can go down to the lower rankings, and you can see doctrines such as the nature of the kingdom of God or the makeup of a person. Maybe you didn't know that's a debate. But in this room, some of you, I suspect, believe that uh, the, the human is made up of two parts, the body and the soul. And then some of you are people who are called tripartite, that you think that they're made up of three parts, that there's the body, the soul, and the spirit. And uh, there are people who will separate over those things, and they won't talk to each other because they hold to those things. Um, those would be now like third level ranking on this whole issue. Now, having said all that, it works really well in an academic circle. Talking about theological triage or dogmatic ranking, all of that is fine when you're talking about it in the academic halls. But it doesn't work so good in real life. And there's a reason. The reason is that no doctrine stands all by itself. None. And you cannot deal with theology in what I would call a linear fashion, meaning step one, step two, step three, step four, and it's all nice and neat. The reality is that they all intermix and are all connected vitally to one another. And so once you start to get into the details, as long as, again, as long as we're talking in an academic theoretical way or we're talking very broad, that works. I, I could have a good conversation with any of you about, yeah, that, that's a critical doctrine. That one I would not say is as critical for you to understand right now. We teach FOF right now, and sometimes questions will come. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, that one you don't even need to worry about right now. It's more important to get this doctrine down first. But once you start to get into the details, you start to realize that all of these are vitally connected to each other. They all become muddled, therefore. So the sinfulness of man, how sinful is man? It's very tightly tied to the nature of his will, the nature of what Jesus actually came to do on the cross. The kingdom of God, you say, well, I don't think that's that important. But it's not merely something that will occur or has already occurred. The kingdom of God is extremely uh, tightly connected to the idea of salvation and the resurrection and eternal rewards. Those are important things. And so all of those are connected with the kingdom of God. So when you're talking about the kingdom of God, you end up finding that it's affecting other doctrines and it makes it a challenge. Well, why am I going on about that? Baptism is one of those issues. It's not merely an issue of when a person gets wet or how wet they get. It's actually much bigger than that, and I want to try to show that to you. Now, others will argue that it's not that big a deal, and others will say it's even a bigger deal than I'm going to make of it. And that's the challenge that we have today. When we come to doc uh, passages that talk about baptism, you have your understanding of baptism. It might be good, it might be bad, it might be vague, it might be very detailed. I don't know. But all of you look at that word baptism and you have thoughts. Some of them are, it's not that important, whatever, let's move on. I actually think it's very important. Some will actually try to say it's in some way or another connected to salvation, Others will say that in some way or another, baptism removes sin, in at least some types of sin. 
Others will say it's some kind of a grace that is conveyed, that when you have the baptism, that God grants and conveys grace to you toward your salvation in one way or another. And others, like us, would say it's symbolic. So what I want to do is try to help us understand the doctrine and the practices. And the only way you can do that is by looking at the ways people and churches have dealt with it over the centuries. So what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is a little short course on historical theology, which is simply how a point of theology developed historically. And we'll want to examine that in light of the scripture. I will tell you that we will not be exhaustive on this subject, and I also tell you that you don't want me to be exhaustive on this subject. At some point, you would say, enough. However, I am going to seek to treat it in such a way that you can understand why Missio Dei Fellowship holds the position it holds, and why we are not willing to budge on it even a little. If you didn't know, Missio Dei Fellowship is a Baptist church. And therefore, right away, you realize with that word Baptist that we have a position in this game, if you will. We have our ideas. When you look at various denominations, you have names that are attached to them that convey certain things that are unique about them, maybe a a, a doctrine that they hold to very strongly. So the Lutherans, the Lutheran church is named, of course, after Martin Luther, who established that. And his doctrine and his teachings are a major influence, but not the only influence in the Lutheran church. So you should not be shocked if you went to a Lutheran church and you heard a lot of doctrines that Martin Luther taught, because that's where it came from. The Presbyterian and the Episcopalians, they are named after a form of church government that they hold to. And we've been talking about this in our Faith and Fable podcast. The Pentecostals, they're named after Acts chapter 2 and what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so a big emphasis on talking in tongues and stuff like that. And then you have the Baptists, like we are, who are named after a specific doctrinal distinctive. Now, As I said, baptism takes on different meanings and purposes depending on how you identify with the Christian faith and the church. Now, I'm saying this in the broadest sense, okay, so I don't need emails saying, well, do you think these guys are Christians? I'm using the term right now very broadly, so keep that in mind as we talk about it. But when you look at the Roman Catholic Church and you say, well, what's their view on baptism? You know they baptize babies and And maybe that's as far as you go with that. But the Roman Catholic Church says that baptism is where the original sin that all humans are born with is removed. And at that point, you become a child of God, and you are now part of the church of God. So baptism is extremely important because it takes away sin, makes you a child of God, and puts you in the actual church where salvation is found. Within the Lutheran church, they baptize babies, but the baptism is a way God, now I'm trying to say this quickly, God imparts faith and grace and salvation, but it's not the water that saves, but in the act of it, God gives that little baby saving faith and therefore they are now a Christian. 
The Presbyterians or the Reformed, they would say, and they'll baptize babies, that baptism is a sign that the child is now a part of the elect or chosen of God. That they are taking on now the sign of the covenant that God has made with his people. Similar to how the Old Testament Israelites would have the male infants circumcised as a sign that they belong to the covenant, in the same way, the children take on the sign of the covenant of baptism, and now they're going to be treated as if they will be saved. Some will say that they are saved. Some will say that they will be saved. It gets, it gets complex with the Presbyterians, but that's what Presbyterians do. Um, then you have the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ, if you didn't know, uh, actually requires that a person be baptized before they're saved. So you can believe the gospel, but until you've been baptized, you are not saved. So if you were, uh, at least according to some of the conversations I've had, if you were, if you trusted in Christ and, and his work on the cross, and, and all that, that's great, but if you died before you got baptized, you still go to hell because you're not yet saved. So whether you knew any of that or not, that's the kind of thing that happens, and that's what happens as you have various people coming into a church like we have. We, you have people coming from all sorts of walks of life and, they, they, and upbringings, and their grandma told them that, and, and their sister said this, and they hear all of this, and they don't know. So what I want to do is help you understand it. Now, when you talk about baptism, you also have to talk about the mode of baptism, the way. There's three ways normally that you'll have it done. The, the first one, the fancy word is aspersion. The easy word is sprinkling. There is just simply the aspersion or sprinkling, but if you want to impress people, I mean, clearly you're going to use aspersion. So when they say, well, we believe in sprinkling, you just have to go, oh, aspersion, I see. And they're like, whoa. I mean, you're already halfway there with winning the argument because they probably haven't even heard that. Sorry. Um, aspersion or sprinkling upon the person. The next one, the fancy word, is effusion. Effusion, which is pouring, where the water is poured over the head. Sometimes the person will be partially submerged, and then they'll have the water poured over their head. And then you have what we do, and that is immersion. Now, let me say some, something. These actually have exceptions to them. We practice immersion. That is what we do. You've seen it. You saw it on uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, and we believe that that's exactly what you should do in the, as the norm. At the same time, I personally, I can't speak for John or Matt Miller, but I personally would have no problem sprinkling or pouring if the situation necessitated that. Meaning, you have a person who comes to faith in the hospital. Well, you can't, like Tom, he had more tubes attached to him than you can imagine. You can't say, hey, take them all off. We got to get ourselves a tub. No. At that point, when the reality is such that you cannot have that immersion, then there's certainly the opportunity to do it another way. I would baptize people in the prison. And 
uh, again, you're, you're limited to what the prison gives you, but here's a person who has made a claim of faith, and now you need to baptize. But the normative for this church, and you've in fact never seen me do a, a, a pouring or a sprinkling, but the normative of this church is immersion. In fact, so much so that you have to be baptized by immersion if you wish to join the church. This is to, again, unless there was a situation like what I just described. And this is to come, this baptism by immersion is to come after you have made a clear profession of faith. That's important as well. Baptism does not come first and then faith. It comes that you have expressed faith in Christ and Christ alone, and then you're baptized and that we believe this because it is why and how you are marked as an individual who has trusted in Christ. So this is a standard we believe to be biblical, and that's what we're going to do and teach on here over these next few weeks. Now, as a local body of, of, of Christ, we're built upon these shared convictions, and some of these are seen as necessary for salvation. Like we would say to anybody else who's a Christian that you need to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. So there's these shared convictions, but there's also some things that are not necessary for salvation, and we can still get along quite nicely, meaning you can be here and hold to infant baptism. And you say, I believe my baptism was valid when I was baptized as a baby. You clearly profess faith in Christ. You can be here and you can worship with us and we will treat you as a brother or sister in Christ. But you can't join the church in a formal sense because the church membership is for people who share these certain convictions. And so one of them is baptism but we can worship with a much broader group, all of those who are truly in Christ through faith. This is why you can go to like a shepherd's conference or a, G, what, a G2, G3, or together with the gospel, they've had their um, conferences. These big conferences where you have different individuals speaking and you have brothers and sisters there, and it's just a wonderful time because there we're celebrating our shared faith in Christ. But what you do at the end of that is you go back into your churches where certain specific convictions are believed and held to and cherished. Now, here is where you what you need to understand then the mode of baptism should never be a reason to question a person's salvation. I've seen that happen, so I want to make that clear. How a person was say, uh, baptized should never be the basis for you to say that you question whether they're saved. The key word there is the way or the mode. If you have come to Christ in faith alone for salvation, then frankly, if you were dipped, sprinkled, poured, or immersed, matters not one bit. That is not a basis for me to look at you or you to look at me and say, I don't think you're a Christian because those things occurred. What matters is where is your faith placed? What is the object of your faith? And it must be Christ alone. So at the same time, though, now hear me, because this is where you can get messed up. Too many, in fact, far too many, believe they are saved because they have been baptized. That is not the mode. That is 
the means. How is one saved? And when you start to say, I was saved because I was baptized, now there becomes this point where we have a separation and we have a disagreement. And so I don't want anyone here to ever walk away thinking, I'm now a Christian because I got baptized. I am now saved. My sins have been washed away. And that is something that is extremely common in our society. And it's not just us, it's around the world. So to deal with that, how are we going to do it? I decided that the only way we can deal with that is that we consider some basic doctrines first, because if we can all agree on those doctrines, even if we don't agree with aspects of baptism, then we now have a common ground. Is that fair? A common ground to talk about baptism rather than talking past each other, which is what oftentimes we do. So if we get this right, I think our task will be a lot easier. So the rest of our time today will be just establishing certain things that I will say are non-negotiables and that they that it, they're common to the Christian faith. And if we can establish this then we can appeal back to those as we talk about baptism. So the first thing, baptism and the authority of the word of God. Our authority has to be the Bible and only the Bible. It's that simple. I am arguing that if you are looking at anything outside of the Bible for your basis of doctrine, then already you're on shaky ground. They can be secondary arguments, like you can make an argument from science or logic or something like that, but those are not authoritative. The only authority that the Christian has is the Bible. The Bible is the faith, the the truth, once delivered, and if we can't agree here, then frankly, we'll never agree. All right, you have to understand. Sometimes you get into arguments with people and and you get so frustrated and it doesn't seem to ever go anywhere. Almost always it's because you guys don't the two, you and the other person don't agree that the authority rests with the Bible. That's usually it. And once you don't have that, there's nothing to talk about. I just personally stop talking to them because you I mean you what what are you going to argue from? I, I refuse to argue from science. I refuse to argue from theory or, or psychology or medicine or whatever you want to do. I'm going to argue from the scripture, and that is my final authority. So understand that is the first thing you have to come to grips with when you're talking about baptism. We often hear that the word is not actually our final authority. I grew up at, for a while in a church called the Nazarenes, which is a subset of the Methodist church. And the Nazarenes, some of you I know here were Nazarenes, they had this thing called the manual. And the manual got pulled out anytime you did something wrong. And it told you you couldn't play cards, any kind of cards. You couldn't go to movies. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. It was the manual. And this told you what holiness looked like. And so that became the point of authority. That became the basis of what is sin and what is not sin. It wasn't the Bible anymore. It now became the manual. The Roman Catholic Church they don't believe that the Bible is the point of authority. And this is something many people don't grasp. We're going to be doing a long series on the Roman Catholic Church in our Faith and Fable podcast as soon as we finish all the other long things we're doing. But we will do that. 
The Roman Catholic Church does not hold that the Bible is our point of authority. It is a point, but not the point. The final point of authority, of truth, is the magisterium and the Catholic Church itself. It's their tradition and their teachings. So the Catholic Church tells you what the Bible means, and that's the only thing it can be. So you have to understand that for them, it's tradition, and then the, the, the Pope himself. Others will have their councils and their creeds and their catechisms, which become the true point of authority. I remember having a long debate for years with a brother I dearly loved, who was a Lutheran. And when we would look at, we, when we would look at the word together and talk about these doctrines, at some point I would get him in a corner because we're looking at the text and it's like, that's what it says. And it was interesting early on in our relationship. And we, we dealt with this over like a decade. Over the early part, the early years, he would, when he didn't know what to say, he would revert to his catechism. It was fascinating to watch. When he didn't know what else to say, he would then kick out and start to bite. I mean, it was impressive how much he remembered of his catechism in his youth, but he would start to say it because he, that's what I believe. And I would then try to be kind to him. It's like, dude, I don't care what your catechism says. Let's look at the text. Let's look at the text. Now, there's nothing wrong with catechisms or creeds or confessions. They're incredibly important, but they're never going to be the ultimate authority. Scripture has to be that. So I'm asking you to decide in your own mind, do you agree with that? Now, this raises a problem, though, because often we talk to other people about some doctrine, and we find that they have a different perspective on the doctrine because they look at that verse differently. Part of this, again, comes in one of three ways, tradition or theology or vague passages. Some people will take uh, their tradition, again, the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, and they will uh, take that tradition, and that's what that verse means now. Others, it's their theology. So if you know what an Arminian is, an Arminian theology argues that one of the tenets is that you can lose your salvation. And so the Assembly of God, the Methodist Church, the Nazarene Church, the Christian Church, um, the Christian Church is like First Christian Church out on sea, they're all five-point Arminian in their theology. And so they all believe that in one way or another, you can lose your salvation. Now, when you know that, then when, when that's what your theology says, when you look at certain verses that theology tells you how you should look at those verses. Does that make sense? They, they color, and they're not the only ones. We all can do this. The final one is vague passages. People will grab a hold of some vague passage, and that becomes their verse. So I remember back when we were part of Grace Community Church, we had this uh, group he used to be a seminary student, then he left the seminary because he realized that uh, the seminary and Grace Community Church was part of the apostate church, and that he belonged to the true church, and magically he was the one that had the true teachings. And one of his pet doctrines was that there is no such thing as the Trinity, but actually that God is nine persons. And the reason he gets that is out of Revelation, it talks about the seven spirits of God. And so there's seven there plus the Son and the Father. Bam. 
case closed, and it doesn't matter anything else. And there was no talking to the guy. I knew him. Um, in fact, I actually had preached at his church uh, once before he went wacko. And, but he would, he, would, uh, he would come and protest against Grace Community Church, and that was his doctrine, some vague verse, and he gloms on that, and that becomes the basis for all understanding. So let me give you some quick pointers what we want to do when we're dealing with the Bible. If we're going to use that as our authority, then we should know how to do it. I'm going to go quickly through this part. The first thing you always have to understand is context, and you should know that by now with us, that when, when we're talking, when we're in a study, I always want you to look at the context. I want you to understand that. That's why we don't just pick a verse and make a sermon out of it, and we, we rather go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through books. We want you to see the context. Verses have to be stood, understood in that context. An example is Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. That gets taken out of context all the time, and now that's the basis for a church. You just need two or three Christians, and if they gather in Christ's names, that's a church. That's got nothing to do with what Matthew 18 is talking about. If you want to know what it means, listen to our fixing fables. It's a sub set of our podcast. You can just go to faithfable.com under the search, just type in fixing fables, and you'll see all the different verses that we have dealt with. And we have many more that we're just going to say, this is the context and this is what it means. But it involves bringing an understanding of the language, of grammar, of history. It means that you have to understand the broader context. A fancy phrase for that is the analogy of the faith, meaning that you don't close your mind after you read one verse, but you understand that there are many other verses that also speak about this doctrine, and we need to keep all of those in mind as we come to certain conclusions. So it submits your understanding of one verse to the rest of the Bible to make certain that it fits. We also have to learn to differentiate between what's called the didactic and the narrative. The didactic is the ought, and the narrative is the is. It's the story versus the command. Book of Acts is a narrative. It's telling a story. It's filled, though, with places where there's teaching or didactic, and you have to keep the two different. The, the didactic teaching of a man with his wife is that he is, just to use one passage, love his wife as Christ loved the church, right? That is the command. That's not hard to figure out. It commands you. It also commands a husband in First Peter that you are to live with your wife in an understanding manner, as a, with a weaker vessel, granting her honor as a fellow heir of the grace. So you, that is another command. Those are the didactics. You can take a narrative passage where Abraham has a guy who's a king who looks at his wife who's very beautiful and he wants her. And so he now lies and says, oh, she's just my sister here. You can take her. And you can say, cool, I can do that too. No, you can't. And no, you won't. You're not allowed to. That's a story. It's just simply telling you what happened. It's not saying you should go do that. And yet a lot of people will develop doctrine out of a narrative rather than the didactic, the the commands, the teaching, the instruction. Don't mix the two. That's where error comes in. 
So if you're ever going to get a basic foundational grasp of real issues on baptism, you have to settle with first the word and then certain other doctrines. So let me go through them. Go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. And I'm going to be going fairly quickly here. So if you're slow in getting yourself around the Bible, you may want to find it easier just to listen and grab the ones that you know where they're at. In Ephesians 2, the next thing is if we believe in the authority of the Bible, then we have to all agree that we're dead in our sins, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins, and the reason is the Bible tells us so. And it says in verse 1, and you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sin. And then he says a lot of other things we were. But then in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, for by grace you've been saved. So twice he points out that we were dead in our sins, and the way that we were made alive is by God's grace. In Colossians 2, uh, it says the same thing or similar things. 2.13, it says, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So again, the clear statement is that we're dead. It's not hard to understand. It's just as hard to accept. A person is gripped But when a person becomes gripped with the fact that they're dead in their sins, then salvation and baptism actually become um, easier to understand. But when you don't get that clear in your head, it it gets a bit muddled. When you don't really understand that you're dead in your sin and and exactly how grievous that sin is and what that state is, then when you're dealing with baptism, you can treat it casually and it creates some problems. And I'll develop this over the next couple of weeks. But look at other passages, just in case you're not convinced that we're as messed up as we are apart from Christ. Romans 3, 19 through 18, and you all know this. He says, and that's brutal, there is none righteous, starting in verse 10, not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become useless, there is none who does good, there is not even one, their throat is an open grave, their tongue they keep deceiving, the poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just a brutal statement there. Go over a page or two to Romans 5 verse 12. And he says that through one man, speaking of the original man, Adam, one, one man's sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so we're dead in our sins. Jeremiah says that there is nothing more deceitful or sick than a human heart. No one can understand their own heart. Only God can understand the heart. In Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says that out of the heart proceeds all of the things that you and I see in the world around us. That is what we see. When we see lies or murders or riots or whatever you want to see, he says that's not coming from the outside upon us. It's coming out of our own hearts outward. 
The problem is not our environment. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is our own heart. We need something radically done to our own nature, our own heart. So we have the word of God is authoritative. We have the reality that we have, are dead in our sins. We don't fear God, that at the very core of our being, we are the most deceitful thing out there, and that everything finds its origins from within us, not outside of us. That is what the Scripture says. And so now we have to say, do we really believe the Scripture is authoritative? Now, all of this affects baptism. The next thing you have to conclude is, do you believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone? You have to conclude that if we're going to ever have a discussion about baptism. In the most simplest of terms, all false religions, every false religion, teaches that you're saved through something you do, some sort of work. And now this is where baptism can come and become a real issue. Because if you are using baptism as the way or the means in which you're saved, then there is a real problem between you and the Scripture. So if you are holding that baptism is why you know you're saved, you are holding on to the wrong object. The only object you can hold on to is Christ and Christ alone. In too many situations, the idea of grace may be discussed. So the Catholic Church will say that though they baptize the infant and through the uttering of the words, where you say that I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they sprinkle the water on the infant, that that act takes away the sin of Adam, makes him a child of God, and puts him in the church, that they would call that grace. And so when we hear these words, a lot of times people don't mean the same thing when they use words. So when they talk about faith or grace, I'm reading a book right now of a, a very congenial debate between a Christian theologian and a Mormon theologian. I didn't know they had theologians. They do. And it's actually a very fascinating read as they both talk about key doctrines of the Christian faith because a Mormon is saying we are Christian. And the theologian, they're actually friends saying, no, you're not. And what, you're, what you hear is the devil is in the details, is what are these terms? What do they mean? A lot of people talk about grace, but it's not what the Bible would. It's either redefined or it's given second place. So the Catholic Church, as I said, baptism is the way sin is removed from the infant, not grace. Here's another one, Lutherans. Many Lutherans, now listen all the way, especially if you're Lutheran. Many Lutherans believe that through the baptism of an infant, that the child is now given a new birth and have new life in Christ. That it's through that baptism that they now have life in Christ. So when you talk to the average Lutheran, not all of them get this, and they don't understand, and that's what they would say. It's something like that, yes. So if you ask them their testimony, when were you saved? When I was baptized. What do you mean by that? You might get a good answer, you might get a bad answer, but a lot of them hold that somehow through that baptism, they're now saved. The Lutheran church doesn't teach that, though. But many in the church do. 
Now, when we look at the Bible, we see, though, that salvation is holy of God. It's 100%. Jonah said it very simply in the book of Jonah. Salvation is from the Lord. It proceeds out of God and God alone. Again, going back to Ephesians 2, we can go to one that you all know probably, most likely. Many of you have it memorized. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, he says, For... By grace, he, that for is for this reason. He's talking about, in verse 7, in order that in the ages to come, when he makes the new heavens and earth, sin is banished, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So throughout eternity, we will be able to see the fullness and the vastness and the infinite, infinite nature of God's grace that he's shown to us. That's what he's going to do. For this reason, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one should boast for our why. For we are his workmanship. No, it's not ours, but his. We're created. That's a passive thing that God did to us. We're created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he says, first understand this by grace, through faith, that you're saved. Now notice that word in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that word that is important because it's not talking about the grace, it's not just talking about saved, and it's not just talking about faith, it's actually talking about the whole thing. The whole thing that God does is God's work. It's all by grace. It's all through faith. God is the one that gives you the faith, whether you knew it or not. God is the one who graciously saves you. All of it is a work of God. It's not something you produce within yourself. It's truly by grace. Now go to John 6, and we'll do this briefly. I've got 15 minutes. John 6, Jesus has, the day before, many of you know this already, that he fed the 5,000 plus of women and children, and he did it in a miraculous way. The next day, he's on the other side of the lake, and now everyone shows up, and basically the reason they show up is they want breakfast. They want to be fed, and now he's going to teach them instead of feeding them, so they're going to be very, very disappointed in him. But in verse 37, he says, all, so he's now telling all these people, all, how many is all here? Well, we can expect that it's everyone. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now, he's talking about that they need a different kind of bread. They need Christ, okay? And he says some very important things. Every person that comes to me will be saved. They'll be kept. He will not cast them away. But how do they come? What is the reason that they come? Look at verse 37. I mean, 30, yeah, 37. What is the reason that they come? The Father has given them. Not that they, on their own, chose and made these decisions, but in fact, what's happening is that the Father is giving him 
people, and every one of them, not, it's not may come, but will come, and I will not cast them out. Why? Why does he say that? Well, verse 38, remember the word for, it means what? For this reason, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So my question to you is what then is the will of God the Father for his son? And all we got to do is look at the context, the next verse. And this is the will. See how easy this is? I get paid to do this, and yet you can do it. And this is the will of him who sent me, that how many of all that what, that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. It's that simple. It's mind-blowing. It's just maybe disturbing or unsettling, but it's that simple and glorious that all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And why? Because that's God's will, that I not lose one of them. And so he cannot lose any that the Father has given him. He does it again um, in verse 44. No one, now he does it from the negative, right? No one can come to me unless what? The Father draws him. And what will he do, though, if they do come to him? And according to verse 44, I'll raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 64 and 65. Now, there were some, he's saying things that's really bothersome to people, that they don't like this. Remember, they came for breakfast, and they're getting this, and they don't like it. And so it says that some of you who do not believe. Why? Why does he know that there are some who do not believe? For this reason, verse 64, Jesus knew from when, the beginning, who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. He's not surprised. He knows what's going on. And so what's he do? Does he say, let me calm them down, let me be kind, let me start talking vague like the preachers of today? No, he shoves it in their face one more time. He says in verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, it says many of his disciples no longer followed him. They can't handle that. They will not take that kind of talk, that kind of narrow-mindedness, that kind of short-sightedness, that kind of mindset that it's all of God, but that is what we mean when we say we are saved by grace. It is God's grace in my life. You say, why am I saved? Because God showed you grace. And if you spend any time trying to figure it out because you'd like, well, what did I do? You did nothing. You'll never do nothing. No one is saved because they changed something. Now this gets into it. No one is saved because they got baptized. You can't be saved that way. It is by grace and grace alone, our song. Why do you hear the word grace so much in our preaching? Why do you hear the word grace so much in our singing and our prayer? Because it's the only reason any of us have life. It's grace. You say, you have no idea what I've done. It doesn't matter. 
Grace is greater than your sin. You keep thinking, well, why not this person? I don't know. All that the Father has given shall come. I only know that, and it's enough. So the salvation is holy of grace. Faith is not what saves you. Faith will never save you. Grace saves you. For by grace you are saved. Through faith. That's the instrument. I, it's maybe not a really great illustration, but it's one I made up when I was a jail chaplain to help people understand. You're a starving individual. You're literally dying, and somebody gives you a bowl of porridge or soup, and then you take the spoon and you carefully eat the soup and you gain strength, right? Would you ever say that the spoon saved you? Well, of course not. The spoon was merely the instrument to which you got the soup into your mouth. It was the soup that nourished you. And then soup is where it was. For by grace you're saved, the instrument in which you receive that is faith, and that even is a gift of God. So you never get to brag or boast or rest upon yourself ever. It's simply the kindness of God that he caused you to believe. And it's wonderful to watch as you see people when they start to see that and their, their hearts soften and, and they become gentle and kind because they realize that truly it is not of themselves, it is God and he has been so kind to them. Faith will never be your parents' faith, it will never be your pastor's faith, it will never be your church's faith, it is your faith in that gospel that is the instrument. And that means that you have to exercise your mind and heart. Now, you're wondering maybe where am I going with this? I'm, I'm preparing for next week. Faith requires you to think. You must apprehend. You must know the facts of the gospel. You must understand and agree with the facts, and you must place your trust in those things. All of that has to be, and that's all of the mind or the heart. You must apprehend and trust. Keep that in your mind because next week we're going to talk about infant baptism and what is people, what are people saying happens with infant baptism. So all of this is very important. When the church, such as the Church of Christ, tries to tell you that you're saved through faith in Christ and baptism, you've stepped away from grace. You've stepped away from God's work, and now it's something you must perform. The same is very true of the Roman Catholic Church. Entrance to the church and salvation is by the right of baptism. They teach that the true baptism does five things. Listen to them. I'll listen, list them quickly, but they're in my notes. They teach you that the right of baptism does five things. This is coming from their catechism. It forgives all sins that may have been committed prior to the person's baptism, including original sin, mortal sins, and venial sins. If you don't know what they are, just they're sins. And it relieves the punishment for those sins. So if you're baptized as a baby, you haven't done anything wrong yet, so you just have the original sin. But if we get Mike here, and he gets baptized into the Catholic Church. Everything Mike ever did is washed away the moment that he is baptized. Second, it makes a newly baptized person a new creature. Third, it turns the person into a newly adopted son of God and now a member of Christ. And so baptism incorporates the person into the church, which is the body of Christ. 
Next, it brings you into communion with the whole of the Catholic Church. And finally, baptism leaves an indelible spiritual mark of belonging to Christ on the soul. Nothing you can do will take, it, take away this mark, even if you sin a million times. Those sins may prevent you from being open to the salvation God's offers through baptism, but you will always carry the mark of a Christian on your soul. Therefore, rebaptism is impossible. I remember hearing a theologian talk, and he's like, People don't understand that many, many children of God will be in hell for eternity. I'm like, what? And that's what he's talking about. When you're baptized, you have this mark that you are now a child of God, even if you go to hell. Now, these are very incredible claims. And if they are true, beloved, you should pursue them. But again, I will argue that the grace they claim will come to those who go through a work, a right, rather than through grace. So it's very critical when we talk about the subject that we see baptism as something that's far more than the way we baptize, but rather I want to argue for the reason we baptize. Why does one get baptized? So don't discount the importance of it. One soul literally hangs on this. So come back next week and we can begin to tear through this. In in today's world, though, a minimalism in the pulpit and personal opinion, we are so weak to the clarity of mankind's sinfulness and their need for grace. Whether you knew it or not, baptism is the very first command you're to obey as a Christian. It's not option. It blows me mind, blows my mind how many churches treat it as optional. It cannot be optional. Christ commanded it. But it is not the way you're saved. It is rather a public witness to all that you are now a follower of Jesus Christ and that there is no greater love nor greater loyalty in your life. And it is one of the two ordinances that the Lord gave to the church. Baptism, and then we weekly remember the Lord's Supper. Those are the two that we are called to have to remind us and testify what we already believe. So with that in mind, next week, Lord willing, we will develop it more fully. Let's pray. Well, Father, I hope in some way this was helpful to them. I hope that it clarified to those who lack clarity. I hope it challenged us to want to know more about this important doctrine, why it is that millions were killed over the centuries over this very doctrine. Why would they die for something like this unless it meant something? Help us to see those things, Father. Help us to humble our hearts to not assume we have it all down, but rather to examine the Word of God together. Bless these people as they go home. Let this rest upon their mind. And Father, for any here who do not know Christ, could you open their eyes to see this simply by grace, that Jesus and Jesus alone is a means and a way of salvation, that they might cry out for salvation because of him. And stop right there and delight in the fact that in him, full forgiveness comes their way. Bless us, Father. Care for us as we enjoy the rest of the day. I do pray that you will bless us in ways that we would see your goodness and mercies all the more. In your son's name, amen.